Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican, meets with a group of House conservative Republicans about government spending and says he may seek further cuts in the agreement he reached with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat. Temporary spending for parts of the federal government expires January 19th. We'll get the latest from Emily Brooks, House reporter for The Hill. The inflation report for December is out. Prices are up a bit. We'll hear from the White House National Economic Director, Lael Brainerd. Donald Trump, former president and 2024 Republican presidential candidate, ignores the judge's warnings in his civil fraud trial in New York during today's closing arguments to stay on topic and launches into an attack of the judge, the New York attorney general, and the whole process. Pentagon's inspector general says it will investigate who knew what and who told who about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. Country music star Jelly Roll testifies before a Senate committee about reducing fentanyl trafficking and deaths. And Virginia's governor, Glenn Youngkin, talks about the agreement with the owner of the Washington Capitals and Wizards professional sports teams to move them to Northern Virginia. Speaker Mike Johnson came under mounting pressure on Thursday, writes the New York Times, from House GOP hardliners to renege on the spending deal he struck with Democrats over the weekend for avoiding a government shutdown as ultra-conservatives demanded he put forward a new plan with deeper cuts. After meeting privately in his office in the Capitol with Republicans, irate about the spending agreement, Mr. Johnson said he was discussing their demands to walk away from the bipartisan agreement, but had made no commitments to do so. That was the New York Times. Here is Speaker Johnson with reporters. Speaker Johnson, a lot of conservatives Let me me tell you what's going on. We're we're having uh, thoughtful conversations about funding options and priorities. We had a cross-section of members in today. We'll continue having cross-sections of members in. And while those conversations are going on, I've made no commitments. So if you hear otherwise, it's just simply not true. We're looking forward to those conversations. Are you you open open to to the No more questions, guys. Emily Brooks, House reporter for The Hill, has been tracking today's developments on government spending and joins us now. Thank you again for being with us. Yesterday, Speaker Johnson was praising this deal he reached with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Today, it's back to the drawing board. Well, we'll see. I mean, certainly these uh, conservatives in the House Freedom Caucus and their allies would love to see that. And that's why they were huddled in his office today, trying to pressure him to renegotiate that deal, saying it's not going to be this deal, hoping to get some of that top line number that was announced over the weekend. 
to be brought down. Because remember, this is essentially uh, in line, this deal with what former Speaker Kevin McCarthy negotiated with the Biden White House last year as a part of a plan to increase the debt ceiling. And after that deal was announced, that prompted a lot of outrage from the Freedom Caucus and uh, eventually uh, led to McCarthy's own ouster. So that is sort of the background of where we're coming from here. Now, of course, there is a a government shutdown deadline, the first of a two-tier deadline part of government would shut down if not funded by January 19th. And so if there is any serious push from the speaker to renegotiate the spending agreement um, and it, it, would, it would throw you know some serious questions into how that would be dealt with not let alone how government funding would be dealt with for the rest of the year and whether this these discussions over government funding which have really dominated the last the bulk of the last year in the House of Representatives would continue through the end of the fiscal year. So just to clarify, Speaker Johnson does not necessarily need the votes of these conservative House Republicans, let's say there's 20 or 30 of them, to actually pass a government funding bill. He needs them so that he can remain Speaker. Definitely. And this is just as much about how the House Republicans and and Republicans as a whole are portraying themselves to voters in 2024, trying to say that they are getting wins for the American people, despite uh, President Biden being in office, and also Johnson's own political future. I mean, there's, of course, since we saw the ouster of former Speaker McCarthy, there's a lot of discussion about whether Johnson could face the same fate and face a move against him. Now, we're not quite there yet. I will say that even though some of these members say they're not taking that option off of the table, um, there's nobody explicitly calling for him to be replaced right now. So it's not quite at that same dire stage. But even if it doesn't reach that this year, you know, there, he did skyrocket from a low-level leadership uh, position to the speakership. Um, and there would be a question about whether he would remain in charge and head of the Republican Party in the House in the next Congress, depending on how the rest of this year goes. We're talking with Emily Brooks with The Hill. What has been the reaction from other House members and senators to the the idea about renegotiating this deal? Well, certainly for the people who have been involved in these negotiations for a long time, such as House Republicans who are negotiating the spending agreement, there's a lot of frustration. Um, on the the House side, you know, there's sort of Republicans are saying that they don't think that this is a good idea to try and renegotiate the deal at this late stage, that if Speaker Johnson went back on his word with congressional Democrats in the White House, that that would be really detrimental for his ability to negotiate anything in the future. And as this meeting was happening and these uh, Freedom Caucus members were coming out telling reporters that they are trying to come up with an alternative agreement, uh, my colleagues in the in the Senate were talking to Senate Republicans who were very taken off guard, did not know that was happening, and uh, were, not, were not happy about hearing that this could be another wrinkle thrown into the funding agreement that um, leaders spent 
essentially all of the uh, the break over over the holidays and, and this winter negotiating. What happens next? Do we have any sense of when we might get more information? Yeah, the biggest question, I think, will be what does Speaker Johnson do? So the, definitely keep an eye out from him to see if he's going to be serious and, and actually considering this and trying to change course. Um, we could potentially see some kind of alternative proposal come out from these Freedom Caucus members and these hardline conservatives. Um, there's a lot of also a lot of other talk about how this government funding deadline should be dealt with um, and discussion about whether there should be a short-term stopgap uh, to prevent a government shutdown uh, on the 19th. Or people like Representative Jim Jordan are pushing to have a longer-term um, stopgap continuing resolution and to have that threat of automatic 1% cuts in April Um, which was written into the debt limit deal last year. And so his idea is if you have that, then that would incentivize and have more leverage for Republicans to negotiate some other cuts deeper than um, what is in the current plan and also potentially some concessions on migration policy and border policy. Emily Brooks, House reporter with The Hill. Find her stories at thehill.com and on X at Emily Brooks News. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Congressman Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee, was interviewed on C-SPAN's morning program, Washington Journal, about the original government spending bill that Speaker Johnson negotiated with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the one that's reportedly under revision. It's $1.6 trillion, um, 88, $886 for defense, and that's $25 billion more than last year. You got to realize the Pentagon has not passed an audit since they've started audits. They've lost over a half a trillion dollars in assets. I mean, to me, that is that is inexcusable, and yet we reward them, and that's the way government works. And I'm a I'm basically a hawk. Uh, Daddy fought the Japanese in the Pacific, was a Marine, First Marine Division, in, uh, in Second World War. My mama flew an airplane during the Second World War. For goodness sakes, lost a brother fighting the Nazis. So I. I believe in a strong national defense, but uh, that's just a, a, a microcosm of what's going on in Washington. I've often, people call it the swamp. Swamp is something God created. I think Washington is more of an open sewer. It's um, it, it, everything flows in and nothing flows out, and we are we are at the will of of the lobbyist and the powerful, the powerful elite, the the uniparty, if you will, and I just. I'm sick of it. We're $34 trillion in debt. We take in $5 trillion a year, and yet we spend $7 trillion a year. You, you can call it new math or whatever. It just does not work. And we are going off a fiscal cliff. And somebody's got to say no. Enough is enough. Congressman Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee, on C-SPAN this morning. The House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, was asked about the government funding situation at his weekly news conference. What message can you give to the American people pertaining to what uh, House Democrats are doing uh, to ensure that a government shutdown does not happen? Well, we were able to reach a top-line spending agreement in a bipartisan way that has unlocked the appropriations process that, from the standpoint of House Democrats, is now in the hands of Rosa DeLauro 
and the appropriations team, and we have full confidence uh, in their ability to do what is necessary uh, to craft spending bills that meet the needs of the American people. We are also confident that Senate Democrats under the leadership of Chuck Schumer and Senate Republicans are willing to work in a bipartisan way to reach uh, an ultimate spending agreement with respect to the 12 bills that need to be passed into law. The open question remains whether traditional Republicans are willing to break from the MAGA extremists who are clearly determined to shut down the government. And if any government shutdown occurs, it will be a sole result of Republicans once again deciding that if they are unable to jam their extreme right-wing policies down the throats of the American people, they're going to shut down the government, hurt everyday Americans, and crash the economy. We're going to do everything possible to stop that from happening. Okay, my second question. Uh, what do you make of some GOP members? They're floating this idea to House, House Speaker uh, Mike Johnson over the spending bill. The House Republican agenda is chaos, dysfunction, and extremism. Congressman Akeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, the minority leader, meeting with reporters. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat also from New York, took the first step today to prevent a government shutdown, filing cloture on a shell bill that will contain the short-term funding extension, the CR, continuing resolution, yet to be written. A test vote on the shell bill in the Senate expected next Tuesday after the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. In the House today, a resolution that governs rules for debate for three bills passed after it had failed yesterday. Yesterday, 12 House Republicans voted no as a protest to Speaker Johnson's original spending agreement. Enough of them switched today. As the Speaker said, he's open to changing that agreement. One of the bills the House debated today would overturn a Biden administration waiver of Buy America requirements for electric vehicle chargers. Here's some of the debate on the floor. Transportation and Infrastructure Committee Chair Sam Graves, Republican from Missouri. In November of 2021, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act created the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program and Charging Infrastructure Discretionary Grant Program, funding these uh, programs at $5 billion and $2.5 billion, respectively. The Federal Highway Administration was quick to move a waiver of Buy America requirements for EV chargers to help achieve the Biden administration's very progressive policy agenda, citing a public interest need. There is no public interest need here, Mr. Speaker. Rather, there is just a desire for the administration to continue to push its woke agenda without fully considering the far-reaching ramifications. And it's not better for the climate as China is the number one emitter of greenhouse gas emissions around the world and is certainly not better for American competitiveness or security, as China has already demonstrated that it will utilize infrastructure footholds, as it did with telecommunications and Huawei, to undermine America's national security. Simply put, a waiver undercuts domestic investments and risks empowering foreign nations. If the administration is going to continue to push for massive transition to EVs, it should ensure and comply with the Buy America requirements. This joint resolution received bipartisan support in the Senate, underscoring the support of Congress for ensuring that these dollars aren't funneled to China. 
Congressman Sam Graves, Republican from Missouri, chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, debating on the House floor today. On the other side, the ranking member of the committee, Rick Larson, Democrat of Washington State. Since 1983, all manufactured products have been exempted from Buy America under the federal highway programs. Under this policy, EV chargers funded by the Federal Highway Administration would not have been required to be built in the U.S. Further, there would have been no requirements for those chargers to include any domestic content beyond the iron and steel components. If this policy had been applied to the $7.5 billion for EV charging included in the BIL, we would have supported jobs overseas instead of jobs for U.S. workers. But the Biden administration took action to make sure that would not happen. First, it deemed that the general manufactured products by America waiver would no longer apply to EV chargers. Further, the administration created a new, stronger standard for domestic content in EV chargers. And under the new policy, and for the first time, all federally funded EV chargers must be manufactured in the U.S. The new, US, the, the new policy also includes domestic content requirements for all components, not just those made of iron and steel. The domestic content requirements ramp up over time to allow manufacturers to expand their capacity in the U.S. The policy is working. Since 2021, private companies have announced $500 million in investments across the country in EV charging manufacturing facilities. That is according to the Department of Energy. The investment is creating jobs in an emerging and growing industry. Congressman Rick Larson, Democrat from Washington State, debating on the House floor. The House went on to pass this bill by a vote of 209 to 198. It was mostly party line, but two Democrats voted yes. Davis of North Carolina and Golden of Maine and two Republicans voted no. Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and McClintock of California. The Senate passed this bill in November by a vote of 50 to 48. So it heads to President Biden's desk, but he says he's going to veto it. An overriding veto takes a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate. The Biden administration today also announced $623 million in grants to help build an electric vehicle charging network across the country. On Wall Street, the Dow up 15, Nasdaq up a fraction, S&P down 3. From CNBC, this story, prices that consumers pay for a variety of goods and services rose more than expected in December, according to a Labor Department measure Thursday that shows inflation still holding a grip on the U.S. economy. The consumer price index increased 0.3% for the month, higher than the 0.2% estimate at a time when most economists and policymakers see inflationary pressures easing. On a 12-month basis, the CPI closed 2023 up 3.4%. That was from CNBC. Leo Brainerd, the director of the White House National Economic Council, joined today's White House news conference, got a question about inflation over the past couple of years. If you run down inflation from since President Biden came into office, overall CPI inflation is up 17.6%. Food, you're talking about, is up about 34%. Electricity is up 27%. So what's your message to Americans who are feeling this every day when they buy and use things? Yeah, so uh, the president's message is very much he's uh, fighting for American consumers. He is fighting to lower costs. And you can see it on healthcare. Healthcare is one of the 
single most expensive thing for most Americans. And he has gotten real gains there. Insulin prices down to $35 from $400. Negotiated Medicare prices, $2,000 cap on seniors' out-of-pocket costs. Uh, we have gotten real gains on things like overdraft fees, uh, bounce check fees, baggage fees, family seating. So we are going to continue fighting. And of course, the president is calling on corporations that were all too eager to raise prices when supply chains were snarled and input costs were going up. Now that supply chains are healed, he's calling on those same corporations to pass those savings on to consumers. But in that same time frame, when President Biden came into office, real wages are down 2.5%. So people are, are feeling that pain a little bit. Actually, you know, let me just update the numbers on real wages. Real wages are up since pre-pandemic. Uh, and 0.8%, so, right? 0.8 no, as from of February of 2020. So that's just on, on average hourly earnings. Uh, real wages are up uh, over a percent for all workers, and they're up over three percent uh, for moderate income workers. If you look at uh, overall purchasing power, uh, people can buy as much as they could pre-pandemic, and they've got $1,700 extra to spend. So, in fact. The wage gains have uh, outpaced uh, inflation uh, since pre-pandemic. And of course, employment gains are also meaning more Americans are getting those paychecks, uh, which is allowing them to continue uh, spending and fueling the really good growth that we've seen. Lyle Brainerd directs the White House National Economic Council today in the White House briefing room. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, posting today, this morning's economic news is a disappointment for all hardworking Americans. Inflation increased more than expected last month, with prices up over 70 percent since President Biden took office. Bidenomics continues to cost every American family. Also on the economy, President Biden with a statement, today we learned that Americans filed 16 million new business applications during the first three years of my administration, 16 million acts of hope, the strongest stretch on record. This is Washington Today. Former President Donald Trump, writes CBS News, disregarded restrictions imposed by the judge overseeing his civil fraud trial in New York and addressed the court during closing arguments on Thursday, raging against the state's attorney general and the judge himself for several minutes. The day before, Judge Arthur Engron told Trump's attorneys that he would only be allowed to speak if he limited his comments to relevant material facts that are in evidence and application of the relevant law to those facts. His legal team did not agree. Trump attorney Christopher Kyes raised the issue again in court and the former president began speaking after the judge asked if he would abide by the limits. Engeron allowed him to continue. That's from CBS News. Donald Trump, his two eldest sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump and the Trump Organization, are accused in this case of inflating the value of their assets to secure better terms on loans and insurance. New York State Attorney General Letitia James seeking $370 million in fines and a prohibition against Donald Trump doing business in the New York real estate industry. After it was all over, Donald Trump spoke to reporters away from the courthouse. I thought we'd come down to 40 Wall Street, which is a great building, and you'd get a chance to see one of the nicest buildings in New York and a convenient place, and I don't have to pay any rent because we have it, and it's been a very successful building. But it's a shame to have to have gone through this for years and years and years, and now we'll see if we're going to get an honest verdict. We didn't have a jury. We had no rights to a jury. 
It's a statute that's never been used before for a purpose like this. I just watched a certain broadcast and they said, you know, they've been looking, has it ever been used before? This is a statute that's a consumer fraud statute, never been used for anything like this before. And it's a shame. It's, uh, it's really a, uh, it's a witch hunt in the truest sense of the word. It's election interference. And uh, it just came out, I, this was just, right now, Letitia James visited Joe Biden in the White House numerous times during the Trump witch hunt. And this just came out about 10 minutes ago, I got it. And so it's all, it's all a conspiracy to try and get Biden, who can't put two sentences together, trying to get him into office. So I just want to let you know that uh, we have our best poll numbers, we have the best everything, despite this, and maybe because of this, because the people of the United States, all of those people back there, but the people of the United States really get it. They get it better than anybody else. Yeah, please. President, do you agree with your lawyers what they said on Tuesday that you should not be prosecuted or could not be prosecuted if you ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill a political opponent? Well, you're talking about a totally different case, the immunity. I say this, on immunity, very simple, if a president of the United States does not have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective because he won't be able to do anything because it will mean he'll be prosecuted, strongly prosecuted perhaps, uh, as soon as he leaves office by his by the opposing party. So a president of the United States, I'm not talking just me, I'm talking any president has to have immunity. Donald Trump, Republican presidential candidate and former president today in New York City, part of his statement and news conference with his lawyer, goes on for about 15 minutes. We've got the full video at cspan.org. New York Attorney General Letitia James today put out a statement ahead of closing arguments in the civil fraud trial that reads, Before this trial began, the court ruled in our favor and found that Donald Trump engaged in years of significant financial fraud and unjustly enriched himself and his family. Throughout this trial, we revealed the full scale and scope of that fraud. I am proud of the case we presented, and I am confident that the facts and the rule of law are on our side. Associated Press reports that before today's court session, around 5.30 a.m. Eastern, there was a bomb threat called in to Judge Arthur Engeron's home on Long Island. Officials say nothing was found. The judge will be deciding this case. There is no jury. It'll be in writing, expected, so no further court appearances will be necessary. First Lady Jill Biden spoke today about the House impeachment inquiry against her husband, President Joe Biden, and the two House committees yesterday approving resolutions holding her son, Hunter, in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena for a closed-door deposition. House Republicans are investigating whether Joe Biden benefited financially from Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. The First Lady was interviewed on MSNBC. How have you been coping personally uh, with the onslaught of accusations against your husband and your family, including and especially Hunter, as the focus of a House Oversight Committee hearing, holding him in contempt, obsessing yes. over him, showing picture of, of him during vulnerable moments Horrible. in his battle with addiction on the floor of the House? This would crush any family. Mika, I, I think what they are doing to Hunter is cruel. And I'm really proud of um, how Hunter has rebuilt his life uh, after addiction. You know, I'm, I love my son and it's, had, it's hurt my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm so concerned about, that it's affecting their lives as well. What do you think when you hear Trump Republicans calling you the Biden crime family? 
our. Uh, <laughs> I have one congresswoman. The Biden crime family sold out America. Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's a liar. He's mentally incompetent. Um, and let's not even talk about what let's go Brandon means. Mm -hmm. But you have U.S. senators holding signs that say that. Biden it's hard to realize our country, isn't it? I mean, to look at it, what we used to have and um, what the other side, the extremists, have turned this country into. I mean, we would never see things like that, say, 10 years ago. First Lady Jill Biden interviewed by Mika Brzezinski of MSNBC. Hunter Biden today pleaded not guilty in a Los Angeles courtroom on nine federal tax charges. Prosecutors say Hunter Biden engaged in a four-year scheme to avoid paying at least $1.4 million in federal taxes. If convicted, he faces up to 17 years in prison. Hunter Biden previously pleaded not guilty to federal gun charges in Delaware. Washington Today continues in a moment. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit cspan.org forward slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app that's free and also wherever you find your podcasts. From NBC News, the Pentagon Inspector General said in a memo Thursday that it plans to begin a review of how the department handled Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization due to a diagnosis of prostate cancer. The objective of the review is to examine the roles, processes, procedures, responsibilities, and actions related to the Secretary of Defense's hospitalization in December 2023 to January 2024 and assess whether the DOD's policies and procedures are sufficient to ensure timely and appropriate notifications and the effective transition of authorities as may be warranted due to health-based or other unavailability of senior leadership, the memo from Robert Storch said. Secretary Austin has come under fire for how he and his staff handled communicating his cancer diagnosis and hospitalization over the last month. That was from the NBC News article. Here's the Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder at today's news conference. Secretary Austin remains hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and is in good condition, according to his doctors. He continues to recover well and is focused on executing his duties as the Secretary of Defense. I don't have an update to provide at this time on when he'll be released from the hospital, but we'll, of course, keep you informed. Separately, the Department of Defense Inspector General has initiated a review to examine the roles, processes, procedures, responsibilities, and actions related to the Secretary of Defense's hospitalization in December 2023 and January 2024 and assess whether the DOD's policies and procedures are sufficient to ensure timely and appropriate notifications and the effective transition of authorities as may be warranted due to health-based or other unavailability of senior leadership. The department welcomes the DODIG's review and will fully support. 
While the IG's review is ongoing, it will be inappropriate for us to comment on the specifics of that review. And so I would refer you to the Department of Defense's Inspector General's Office for any further questions. Separately, as I highlighted on Tuesday, on January 8th, the Secretary's Chief of Staff directed the DOD's Director of Administration and Management to conduct a 30-day review of the Department's notification process for assumption of functions and duties of the Secretary of Defense, in addition to directing several immediate steps to ensure appropriate situational awareness when a transfer of authority occurs. While there's understandably many outstanding questions, it's also important to allow both of these reviews to run their course so that we can ensure a full accounting of the facts and importantly to ensure that we can most effectively improve processes and procedures as necessary, as well as meet the standards of transparency expected by the American public, Congress, and the news media. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, who's also an Air Force Brigadier General at today's Pentagon News Conference. Republicans on the U.S. House and Senate Armed Services Committees have launched investigations into who was informed about Defense Secretary Austin's hospitalization and when, and the roles of Pentagon staff in telling or not telling the White House and Congress. Senator Roger Wicker chairs the Senate Committee. He's a Republican from Mississippi. He reacted today at a news conference on Capitol Hill to the announcement from the Pentagon Inspector General. Here is, here's... Um the good news. There, there will now be an outside Inspector General's investigation of this. Uh, as you know, it was announced a day or two ago that, a, that there would be an internal review. We were very much concerned that this would be conducted by, uh, by some of the very people who were involved in this absence of notice. And so um, it is encouraging to me that uh, we're, we have that opportunity with the DOD uh, Inspector General to, um, to get to the facts here. Um, we know now, uh, which we did not know at the first of the week, we know the nature of Secretary Austin's emergency. We, um, we know the nature of the emergency that occurred um, on the first of the year with regard uh, to calling the the ambulance. Um, And um, I've had an opportunity to speak to members of previous administrations um, who I I have to say were somewhat surprised and dismayed that there would be this level of secrecy and this level not only of... um, um, ignorance of um, standard operating procedure, perhaps ignorance of statutory provisions, but certainly an absence of common sense in this regard. Um, we, um, it, it um, really doesn't matter um, whether the statute was violated or not. Uh, um, I've, I've made the point that in, under my interpretation, the statute was ignored and, suggest, and treated as a mere suggestion. Um, if that needs to be cleared up by the members of the legislative branch and the statute um, rewritten in such a way that it is clear, we will do that. Senator Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, Armed Services Committee Chair at a news conference today. 
He also said, we are thankful that nothing serious occurred during this incapacity of the secretary and that national security suffered. But it is a learning experience, I hope, for the administration, for the secretary, and an opportunity for us to make sure this never happens again. Pentagon says that Secretary Austin is in the hospital, in contact with his senior staff, and has full access to required secure communications capabilities and continues to monitor the Pentagon's day-to-day operations worldwide. U.S. Secretary of State wrapped up his latest urgent Mideast tour on Thursday, writes ABC News, in talks with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, as American officials claimed modest success in getting wide regional support for planning for reconstruction and governance in Gaza after Israel's war with Hamas ends. Secretary Blinken spoke with reporters at the Cairo airport before departing. You said that change won't happen overnight, and you've emphasized that Israel has a right to defend herself to ensure its security. But after four trips here to the region, coupled with the reality that the conflict is escalating, are you concerned that your effort to seek a diplomatic resolution is falling flat? What remains the biggest challenge as you look back on the past week and think about your conversations with all the world leaders here in the region? So first, I don't think the conflict is escalating. There are lots of danger points. We're trying to deal with each of them. Uh, Lebanon, where we want to make sure through diplomacy that uh, we can create enough security and a, and, a, and a strong sense of security so that people in Israel who've been forced from their homes can move back. People in southern Lebanon who've been forced from their homes uh, can move back. And we're working aggressively on that with diplomacy. Uh, and Israel strongly supports that. And I think no one wants to see escalation there. Uh, Israel doesn't. Uh, Lebanon doesn't. I actually don't think Hezbollah does. So we're, we're working on that. Uh, the Red Sea. We want to avoid escalation there. Unfortunately, the Houthis continue day after day to attack shipping. So uh, the international community has been very clear about the need for this to stop. The Security Council has pronounced itself. We have um, a number of countries that have made clear that if it doesn't stop, there'll have to be consequences, and unfortunately it hasn't stopped. Uh, But we want to make sure that it it does, and we're prepared to do that. Third, uh, we've been working very hard to try to make sure that the West Bank uh, does not uh, explode, catch on fire. We're very, we're very focused on that. And then finally, Gaza itself. Yes, it's imperative that Israel uh, do everything it can to ensure that October 7th doesn't happen again. But we also want to see this conflict uh, come to an end. And until it does, to make sure that humanitarian assistance goes up for people who need it and civilian protection also increases. We've made, I think, progress on those fronts. Uh, at the same time, Israel has demobilized a, uh, a significant number of forces starting in the, in the north. Uh, so that process has, has begun, uh, and we'll be working on that uh, in, the, in the days and months ahead. So we're, 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 we're doing everything we can with very strong regional support, again, to make sure that this doesn't spread, that there can't be a repeat of October 7th, uh, but also that this conflict comes to an end. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the airport in Cairo, Egypt, with reporters. He said it was his 10th and final stop of this Mideast tour. A CNN article reads, Iran's permanent mission to the United Nations said in a statement to CNN that the seizure of a crude tanker by the Iranian army on Thursday does not constitute hijacking, but is rather a lawful undertaking sanctioned by a court order. A vessel was boarded Thursday by at least four armed people in the Gulf of Oman and has diverted its course toward Iranian territorial waters. 
according to the United Kingdom Maritime Trade Operation. Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps associated media outlet Tazin News Agency said that Iran had seized the tanker and is transferring it to an Iranian port in retaliation for the United States confiscating the same vessel and its oil last year. That was from CNN. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby spoke about it today at the White House briefing. I'm sure you've all seen reports about uh, the Iranians' apparent seizure of a merchant vessel called the St. Nicholas, a Marshall Islands flagged and Greek-owned oil tanker. While it was lawfully navigating waters in the Gulf of Oman, we condemn this apparent seizure. The Iranian government should immediately release the ship and its crew. These provocative and unacceptable actions need to stop. We'll continue to work with our uh, allies and partners to deter and confront the full range of Iran's concerning and destabilizing behavior in close coordination, of course, uh, with the international community. John Kirby, the spokesperson for the White House National Security Council, its strategic communications coordinator, and at the State Department, here's the deputy spokesperson, Vedant Patel. There's a ship that the Iranian Navy has apparently seized, uh, formerly called the Suez Rajan. Do you have any information on the ship or any reaction to what's taken place? So we uh, condemn the Iranian seizure of the St. Nicholas, which is a uh, Marshall uh, Islands flagged and Greek-owned oil tanker, uh, while it was lawfully navigating waters in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, the Iranian government must immediately release the ship and its crew. Uh, this unlawful seizure of a commercial vessel is just the latest behavior by Iran or enabled by Iran aimed at disrupting international commerce. Uh, We believe this kind of action will simply add uncertainty for commercial shipping and for uh, regional and global economies. Iran and Iran-abled provocative actions like this are a menace to the global economy and it must cease. Uh, We um, in the United States will continue to work to deter and confront the full range of Iran's concerning and uh, destabilizing behaviors. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Vedant Patel. This is Washington Today. WKBN-TV, CBS affiliate in Youngstown, Ohio, has this story. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown had some star-studded help Thursday as he works to bring awareness to the fentanyl crisis. Brown had a hearing Thursday in Washington with country music star Jason Jelly Roll DeFord. The singer has been very transparent about his previous drug use, even serving time for crack cocaine charges. Brown is pushing for a new bill, the Fend Off Fentanyl Act, that goes after the fentanyl supply coming out of Mexico and China. DeFord said he was part of the problem and now wants to be part of the solution. Senator Sherrod Brown said last year 110,000 Americans died from unintended drug overdose. That was reporting from the story out of WKBN-TV in Youngstown, Ohio. Here is part of the hearing in Washington. It was the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, which Senator Brown chairs, part of the Q&A with this witness. We have experts who speak to numbers and stats, but from your point of view, describe the everyday struggle of addiction, if you would. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's nothing less than devastating. It is truly the biggest crisis I've seen in America. It's... Um, I'm sad. I'm almost 40 years old, Senator Brown and, and Senator Scott. I have lived long enough to see almost every form of drug uh, that has came across since the 80s. And I grew up in a household that had multiple addicts and alcoholics in that household. I have seen drugs from an early age, and I can tell you that every alcohol I've seen and every drug I've seen, nothing has held a candle to what's happening with fentanyl in the United States of America. 
I'm seeing people shatter. I'm seeing families get broken. I'm seeing, like I spoke about in my speech, um, it's important to note that the real victims is, there's, there's a quote that says, the addict isn't the only person in the family that suffers from the symptoms of the addiction. The entire family suffers with the addict. The entire family rallies around the addict and carries that. The addict is, is not the only victim in this. It spreads far. Thank you. Most of us up here uh, can't sing all that well, but what we can do is legislate. What, would, um, what kind of signal would it send to the people you talk to who struggle to feel heard and seen if we come together in both houses as we have in the Senate? 23 nothing here and then the Senate floor. If we can do that in the House, what kind of signal will it be sent to the people whom you're fighting for? It's immeasurable. It's immeasurable because from the outside looking in, we don't see nothing happening in D.C. except fights. All we see is war and all we see is division. And it makes us feel unheard and unseen. And it makes us feel like our problems will always get caught in the middle of some kind of a partisan issue. And you and Senator Scott coming together and this committee has taken the first step that I think could be the beginning of the change that is needed in America, not just D.C. Because this isn't the only bipartisan bill that needs to be spoke about. It's the mountain in front of us. But there are many mountains behind that one that must be spoke about, too. And I applaud y'all for taking the first step. Because me being here, I know for sure that some of my people are watching this right now. And for the first time ever, we feel heard. The, voice, the voiceless feel like they have a voice in Washington, D.C. today, and I carry that with pride as I stand here with y'all. Country music singer Jason Jelly Roll DeFord testifying before the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee in Washington, D.C. The chair, Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio, with the questions. This from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Fend-Off Fentanyl Act, that's Fentanyl Eradication and Narcotics Deterrence, that Senator Brown introduced with the committee's top Republican, South Carolina's Tim Scott, would direct the Treasury Department to target, sanction, and block the financial assets of transnational criminal organizations and those that launder money to facilitate illicit opioid trafficking. The Senate passed the bill, but the U.S. House of Representatives has not taken it up. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, gave his second annual State of the Commonwealth address in Richmond on Wednesday during which he spoke of a recently announced deal to bring the two professional sports teams in Washington, NBA basketball wizards and NHL hockey capitals, to Northern Virginia. They'd be the first professional sports teams located in the state of Virginia. And just this past month, we announced a sports and entertainment vision unlike any in history. In partnership with the General Assembly, we can bring this opportunity to fruition together we can welcome both a new NBA team and a new NHL team, $12 billion in new economic activity, and 30,000 new jobs. Now, to be clear, all of this is accomplished with no upfront cash commitment from the Commonwealth, no new taxes, and a -a one-of-a-kind public-private partnership where Virginia shares in the project's success. To those on the MEI Commission, thank you. Thank you for your unanimous and bipartisan support. An opportunity of this magnitude is both rare and complex, and I am committed to working together to deliver this win for the Commonwealth. It would be a huge win, not just for the Commonwealth, but for the region, and of course for the city of Alexandria. Small businesses will win too. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, at his State of the Commonwealth address in Richmond on Wednesday. 
The MEI Commission is Major Employment and Investment Commission. And the Virginia General Assembly is considering legislation to create a sports and entertainment authority, which would then have the power to issue $1.5 billion in bonds required for this project to bring the NBA Wizards and NHL Capitals to Alexandria, Virginia. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. It is free. You can subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.